Well, as I said earlier, today is Orphan Sunday across the globe, and I wanted especially today to take a break from our series called One, and I wanted to have Mike Hartwig speak with you and to you. Dr. Mike Hartwig does not come to us as a stranger to the issues surrounding orphans and adoption, foster care, all of those are things he's well acquainted with. I didn't know that when I met him almost 20 years ago, though. I didn't know that when I continued to be friends with him 10 years ago. I didn't know that till a few months ago. I've always thought Mike just kind of had the silver spoon kind of situation, you know, and he finished his doctor's degree and he's very intellectual and all these things that I've known about him. And then I heard a story from him a few months ago that suddenly uh, I, I was just flabbergasted. And I said, Mike, you've got to share this with our church on Orphan Sunday. And so Mike's here not because of his degrees. None of that is really qualifies him to speak in that sense on this topic. What he's going to do today is he's going to share with you something very personal, biblical, and powerful that will relate to every one of you. And I'm so pleased to have my friend here on this Sunday special to share his story because it'll bring God great glory and speak so well to God's grace. So I'm anxious for you to hear it. Welcome, my friend, Mike Hartwood, would you? Thanks, Todd. Thanks, God bless you, man. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you guys. I, and, you know, I, I know so many of you are here, and it's been great to, to, to reacquaint old friendships and things like that. Just to give you an update, I was at uh, uh, Grace Church for many years, as many of you know. Uh, we have three kids, and uh, back a couple months ago, our middle child announced to us that they were going to have our first granddaughter. So we're all excited about that. And uh, we're uh, come January, we're going to be a grandfather. So I'm going to be a grandfather. My wife's going to be a grandmother, obviously. So, uh, But uh, we're all excited. I got to tell you that last night I got, got harassed because the dog was in the house. They have a, a dog. And uh, so the dog's in there. And they have rules with his dog. Uh, so it doesn't get on the carpet, doesn't sit on people's lap, and you don't feed it scraps from the table and all that, which I think is a shame. So, uh, so we're sitting there, and I, I have some, I'm, I'm feeding it table scraps and all that, and, and then I go in and watch the football game, and, and the dog jumps on my lap. We're having just a good old cuddling time, and me and my granddaughter. <laughs> I'm getting ready for granddaughter, you know. So anyway, we're just having a good time snuggling there, watching the game, and the dog's loving it. And uh, my son comes in, and he just looked at me and said, Dad, we have rules in our family. I mean, oh, yeah, we do, I guess. He, and then he, he points his finger at me like this. If I can't trust you with my dog, how can I trust you with my daughter? <laughs> so I looked at the dog, and I said, yeah, you better get down. But I just want you to know, when they're not around, the daughter's going to get spoiled rotten. So looking forward to that. It's great to be with you th- today, and I'm coming to you with a, uh, a subject that, um, and, and back several months ago, I was asked to speak to a men's group, and they said, we want you to talk on a big theme in the scriptures, just a big term. And I said, well, what do you mean big term? You know, like, like salvation. That's a pretty big term, right? That's a big deal. And I said, okay. So as I went back to my study, I was thinking, okay, well, what, what are some of the big terms? Well, you've got salvation. That's definitely a big term. A big idea. And then I thought about redemption. That's a really big deal, too. Once you understand the nuance behind redemption and what it all means, that's a big deal. And then I thought, well, uh, what about propitiation? Oh, that's a great one, too. Of course, I don't know how to spell that one, so I better pass on that. The more I thought about it, 
I thought about this term that we're going to be talking about here today. Because once you understand it, you understand that without it, it puts all the other terms aside. It, they lose their relevancy. It's a term that if you properly implement in your life, that it gives you freedom to enjoy life the way it was meant to be enjoyed. A term that once you understand its nuance and its personal implication, there isn't a person here that it doesn't relate to. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 18 because Christ, if it is such a big term as you would expect, you would find him talking a lot about it, and he does. And here in this passage in Matthew chapter 18, what we have is is a story. uh, We have a story that Christ uses to teach one of his more boisterous disciples. And uh, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 18. And Peter comes to Christ and he, he asks this question about, well, what, what should we do in our modern day society, in his modern day society? What I'd like to do is I'd like to, uh, in a moment, ask you to stand. We're going to read this. I'll, lead, uh, I'll, I'll read it for us while you look uh, and follow along. And then I'm going to have a word of prayer and then you'll be seated. By the end of today, my time with you, what I'd like to do is have you challenge, be challenged on this question. And that is, who in my life have I hurt, and who in my life has hurt me? And am I willing to offer them forgiveness? Let's stand together and read this together, shall we? I'm going to lead us in Matthew 18. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children be thrown, and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a mere hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him, and he said, pay back what you owe me. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Father, thank you so much for a wonderful passage and giving us a glimpse of the teaching of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we might not just chalk it up to being a nice story, 
but help us to really enter into the power of those words and how you've demanded that we not only offer forgiveness, seek forgiveness, but we live a life of forgiveness. And so, Father, uh, anoint our time together. And I pray that as we're thinking about the people who we've hurt in our lives, and we think about the people in our lives that have hurt us, that we'll be willing to lay it at the foot of the cross. And so, Father, guide us, direct us, as we seek your grace and your favor. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Interesting passage. Let me just, I won't make a lot of comments about it, but you understand what's going on pretty simply laid out. You do need to understand the kind of what the idea was here in this passage. Is back in the old days, what would happen is if you wanted to borrow some money, you would basically enter into agreement that if you can't pay it back, then everything you've got, including your wife, your kids, everything would be sold to repay this debt in the event that you couldn't pay it back. It's a terrible way to handle finances, but that's the way they did it back then. Now, I can imagine that there was, they didn't have too many debts going around because who wants to be thrown in jail? But that's what they did. And you can see the example of that that's what this man intended to do to this person. Now, you can imagine if a person owed a bunch of money and they got thrown in jail and, uh, and debtor's prison and the family got thrown, there, there would literally be no way to have that recouped. And so it was kind of a death sentence for not only that family, but it was also a death sentence for to recouping a person's finances and the money that was owed. Christ uses that as an example. Now, my wife and I still do an, uh, a, a lot of marriage counseling. We consistently see maybe one or two couples a week on a regular basis, kind of as just our, our ministry back at our church. And so it's amazing that um, we were... Uh, counting up all the couples that have sat on our couch, and I think we're well over a hundred couples have gone through our and sat on our old ratty couch. I love that couch too because when you sit in it, all the springs in the middle are gone, so that people just kind of sink right into the middle. And if the couple are especially fighting, they're both holding on to the edge of it, and it's great fun for Leanne and I to see <laughs> how that happens. But I remember we got into a conversation one time about this whole concept of forgiveness. And the guy brought up a, a situation. He said something like this. Back, you know, I had an affair back in the day on, on my wife. Uh, and uh, even by mere, the wife mere mentioning that, this is what the guy said. Wait a minute. You forgave me of that. You're supposed to forget it. And I remember thinking about that, and then it opened up this whole idea about, really, what is forgiveness? Christ mentions it here in this passage. He says, we, we should forgive. If, unless you forgive your brother from your heart, says in verse 35, your father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Well, what is forgiveness? Let me talk about two things that forgiveness is not. And you might be tempted to say, well, forgiveness is forgetting. Just let it go. It's no big deal. Just forget about it. After all, isn't that what the scriptures do with us? I mean, God says he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. There's a New Testament passage that even says, I will remember your sin no more. That's what God asks us to do. I'm here to tell you that one of the things forgiveness is not, and that is not forgetting. Because there's a radical difference between us and God. God has the ability to forget We do not. We cannot forget the trespasses against us. In fact, I think it's counterproductive to try to forget your sins and the sins that people have 
perpetrated against us. Because if you look in the, further in the New Testament, God says to, we have an obligation to comfort one another with the comfort that we've been comforted with. Well, what do you mean? Well, we've forgotten everything. Well, who needs to remember it? And who needs to comfort one another? Here's a simple point. If you're trying to forget the bad things that people have done to you or you've done to other people, you will never do it. Instead, God allows us to remember those so we can change. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Neither is forgiveness restoration, restoring. What do you mean? Just because I've forgiven someone doesn't necessarily mean that everything is restored to its previous state. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Back several years ago when I was a youth pastor, I I took a group of about 10 to 15 young people out to Yellowstone, a camp there, a Christian camp, and our mission was to build a dining hall. And what the camp had done is is they had uh, secured some timber off of Yellowstone. They had a fire go through. If you were a nonprofit, you could go in, harvest the timber on it, but you had to deal with it. So we were the dealing team. We get to deal with it. So we would go in, we chopped them down, 20-foot log, and they would drag it onto our property. And our job as uh, 15 uh, high schoolers, and I being the primary leader, was to get these logs up on a little stanchion, and then we would take and give these kids, high schoolers, draw knives. How many of you know what a draw knife is? You know what a draw knife is? A big knife has two handles on it. You just draw it over the timber, and you would peel off the bark. You would come to a place where there was a little twig, and you would work at it with that draw knife, but usually it wasn't strong enough, it was too thick, so what you would do is you'd take a little hand axe and you'd notch it out and then draw the knife over it so it's nice and smooth, so when you build the building, you have a nice little round thing that you can do, use it with. So uh, we get our group of uh, people, and here on this end of the log was, for lack of a better term, was a smarmy little weenie of a guy, skinny kind of wimpy, and I think the draw knife uh, controlled him more than he controlled the draw knife. On the other end of the, of the pole was Mr. Football Star. He was big, burly, strong, ladies' man, hard man. He would often pick on little smarmy guy. I was here in the middle. We were working on draw knives. I was having a great time as we talking. Little smarmy guy yells out, hey, Toss me the hand axe. Burly guy, being the concrete literal thinker he was, grabbed the uh, the, the hand hand axe, flipped it in the air. I can still see it flipping through the air. I reach for it. I miss it. It spins around and hits smarmy guy clearly in the boot. He pauses that moment. Have you ever noticed that when you go through something that there's always a silence right after something. You know, if you've ever been in a car wreck, there's like the, this moment of silence right then, or something bad like this happened. There's silence for just a few seconds, and it was that silence when everybody, and we look out, he looks at his foot, and then it hit his brain. It hit his, his toe. We all gather around him. Blood is starting to ooze out of it. Somebody reaches down to grab the andax. I said, wait, leave it in there. He said, why? And I said, well, because, I don't know, that's what they always tell you to do. Don't, don't take anything off. <laughs> and the guy looks at me, that's not your foot, is it? That's, uh, okay, so, so we, we carefully wrap it 
and we get him in the van. We head off 45 minutes to the hospital. In the meantime, he's writhing in pain, and he's screaming and yelling, and we, we, we try to, to, to lessen the pain as little as possible. We rush him in the ER, and they prop him up, and there's this axe sticking out of the guy's boot, and, and, and blood is starting to come out of it. Doctor comes in. He says, well, let's take a look. He cut, carefully cuts the boot away. He, he, he deals with the hand axe, and he had severed his little toe clean off. It was a nice cut. That, that was about the only thing that's good about it. But, and it was his baby toe. They wrapped him up. They brought him in, in. And this was happened on the Monday. We were going to be there the whole week. The guy had gotten out of work for the entire week. It was a, an act of sheer genius from many people's <laughs> point of view. <laughs> it's a joke. Okay. Uh, <laughs> He's sitting there in the kitchen, and we're trying to figure out what are we going to do with this guy for the week. And so he's sitting there. He's, he's doped up enough, but still carrying on the conversation. And uh, he's feeling okay because he can't feel his foot. But um, he's sitting there with his foot up. And then big burly guy comes in. He takes off his hat. Now, mind you, up to this point, those guys have been teasing. He'd been teasing this smarmy guy for the whole trip. Takes off his hat, and he says... I am so sorry. That was so incredibly stupid. I am so sorry. In a great act of compassion and grace, he says, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Now, let me ask you this. I saw the forgiveness happen. It was genuine. But do you think he still is living with that lost toe to this day? Yes. Just because forgiveness happens doesn't mean restoration happens. You get it? Just because you can live in a state of forgiveness doesn't mean that things will be restored to its previous state. A simple principle here is, even though people have hurt us, even though people have put us through tremendous pain, even though we may have put other people through tremendous pain, and there is suffering and heartache and all those kind of things, the simple reality is forgiveness doesn't always mean restoration. Now, it can but it isn't pre- a precursor to forgiveness. Well, if it's not forgetting and it's not restoration, well, what is forgiveness? You ready for the etymological history of the word forgiveness? I like that. That's great. It, etymological history. What, what does the word mean? What does that mean? What does forgiveness mean? It's quite simple. Release from a debt. Release from a debt. Now, my wife uh, was working, as she's a kindergarten teacher, uh, some little kid fell on the back of her knee, blew out her knee. We start meeting with the insurance people, and they made this statement. Okay, we've done some calculations. Your knee is worth X amount of dollars. And I said, really? How much is her other knee worth? And what about her foot? And what about That was a a joke. But they have, they know, and some of you know this, they have a price on every single body part, okay? How many of you knew that? 
Let me see your hand. Yeah, you, every, you know your, your, your finger is worth so much? His pinky toe, I think, is worth around $500. Now, what the legal people would say is he caused an offense, and so what he, a burly guy, owes is $500 to this guy right here. When he forgave him, he released him from that debt. What forgiveness means is to release from a debt. Now, here's the deal. Every single person, every person in this room, somebody has hurt you. Now, you might be saying, oh, no, uh-uh. nobody's been hurt like me. To which I would say, it may be a relative degree, but I don't care who you are, everybody in this room, the simple reality is we live in a fallen world. We all have been hurt by people. And because of that, we can demand our pound of flesh from whoever's been the, the one who's hurt us. What we need to do is be able to release those people from a debt that we owe them. And when you do, it's amazing how life changes. You walk with a sense of confidence because you walk into a room and you have this underlying tone about you that, you know what? Nobody can hurt me. Let me see if I can bring this a little more personal. I was sitting in, uh, as, a, as a small boy, I was sitting there watching the Mickey Mouse Club. Anybody remember the Mickey Mouse Club? How many of you remember Mickey Mouse Club? Oh, yeah, all right. And who was on Mickey Mouse Club? Annette Funicello. Oh, brother. Okay. Younger crowd, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sitting there watching Mickey Mouse Club, waiting for Annette Funicello there, and, and uh, my dad comes in. He's in his Navy uniform uh, with a little tie, the blue, and in his hand is a white rolled-up hat and, and a brown paper bag. He's standing in the doorway with my two sisters, sisters sitting on the couch. I was sitting on the floor, mainly because it was my responsibility to be the channel changer. We didn't have remotes. We had to get up and change the channel. Remember that? Anybody have a pair of vice grips to change the channel with? All right, good, all right. See, I, that was my role, is to keep that vice grips on and be able to change the channel. And, and so I was sitting on the floor. My dad leans into the, the doorway there, and he says, Mike, I need to see you downstairs. And I said, no. <laughs> and that food chills about ready to come on. Dad said, no, I've got a present for you. So I think, okay. I'm willing to go. And so I follow him down the stairs into our basement, and Dad immediately sits on a bar stool in front of our workbench. He's sitting there. He picks me up, puts me in his lap. He reaches over, picks the, with his arms around me, picks it up, and gives me the brown paper bag. I open it up, and I pull gently out a balsa wood airplane. Remember those balsa wood airplanes with the rubber band and the plastic propeller? We put it together gently, making sure not to crack those balsa, that balsa wood. And then he winds it up, and he spins around, facing the larger part of the basement, and he goes with me on his lap. He throws it, and we watch it drift all the way across that, that basement, hit the wall, and fall to the ground. I remember looking up at him and thinking, that is so cool. <laughs> 
I jump down, run over, scurry over, pick, grab it, pick it up, bring it back to him. And I, I'm winding as I go. And he says, here, let me help. And I said, no, I can do it. And I did it. And I'm standing there next to that, sh- that, that sh- seat with him on it. And I throw it and it does the same thing. Hits the wall, falls to the ground. I run over, pick it up. I start winding it up. I look up to see my dad's seat is empty. Instead, I see his legs walking up the stairs. And that's the last memory I have of my dad as he walks out of my life and the life of my two sisters and my mother forever. In the weeks and months to follow, mom started dating someone. She was trying to keep a job. I remember her being gone for long hours at the time, being left there with my, just my sister, my older sister babysitting and my younger sister there. And we were there for long periods. Every once in a while, she would bring a boy home. And uh, I remember sitting there at the kitchen table and he, one of the men that he had, she had over, had this big old cigar. I, I asked her how I could ha- try it. And, and he, he said, sure, go ahead. So I took it and I took a big old drag from it. And I remember coughing all over and putting it down in that little ashtray thinking, so this is what it means to be a man. He had a beer there, and I said, hey, can I have some of that? You bet, have some of that. I took one gulp of it, and I spit it out at him, and then in the meantime, I knocked over his beer, and then instinctively, he just whacked me off my seat and fell over to that, and he was laughing, don't you ever do that again. You, and I ran off. I didn't want anything to do with him anymore. That continued for about a year. Went over, mom, uh, mom had to spend several months with my grandmother and uh, I, with my two sisters, and so we were there for several months, And I had my G.I. Joe, my sleeping bag, and my Land of the Giants coloring book. And I was coloring there in front of the television set, and Grandma made the announcement, I have an announcement. Girls, come in. Come into the living room. I have an announcement. She had just gotten off the phone. My two sisters came and sat on the couch with me, and she said, well, your mom has decided to put you up for adoption. And Grandma tried to make the case that this wasn't such a bad idea. She looked at me and she said, now, Michael, there's a really good chance that you're going to be able to get with a family that has boys. You'd like some brothers. And I looked at both of my sisters and I said, boy, would I like some brothers. Maybe this won't be such a bad idea after all get rid of my two stinky, cootie-ridden sisters? You bet. I'll take that any day of the week. I'll never forget standing there by that picture window and watching the green Mustang pull in the driveway with its sole occupant, my new dad. He was dressed in his fine business suit. He got out of the car. He walked up to the door. He knocked on the door, and I was standing there, and he says, Michael, and I said, Dad? He opened the door, said a few things to my grandmother, and I grabbed my only possessions in, the, in this world, the sleeping bag of G.I. Joe and my Land of the Giants coloring book. We got in the car. We drove across town to a fairly nice house. My dad was an executive with AT&T, with a telephone company. It wasn't AT&T then, but uh, with a telephone company. And as he walked in, he was carrying my sleeping bag. I had my G.I. Joe in the land of the Kung Fu Dad had. And he opened the door, let me in first, and he opened the door and he made this announcement. He said, come see your new brother. Out from the kitchen came my new mother. Out from the back room came Benji. She's my oldest sister. 
Then came Billy, my next older sister. Then came Nola, my next older sister. Next came Annette, my next, my younger sister. And as we stood there, each introducing themselves, the matter I got. I just traded two sisters for four cootie-ridden sisters. And as I was standing there, there were some other pleasantries going on and those kind of things, and I noticed my mom didn't really say anything. She stood there with a, a hand towel, and, and she just looked bitter. Dad said, i got to go back to work. He left. Girls went out back into the room. I was standing there in that living room with my new mother, and she made this statement, take your stuff, your room's at the end of the hall, and come see me in the kitchen. I said, no, and you can't make me. You could feel the tension as it rose in her. She turned red, she clenched her fist, and then she let go. She started yelling, screaming at me. She ran over to me, literally grabbed me by the hair of the head, started beating me, lifting me up on the counter, threw me on the counter, grabbed for a knife and said, no kid is going to come into my house and ruin the good thing that we've got here. If you're not going to straighten up, I'm going to take this knife and plunge it into your skull. She pushed me on the ground. I ran back in the back room into the closet. Those kind of beatings continued until I was 14 years old. It's not unusual for her to come after me with any weapon, any sports equipment. I've learned to have a disdain for hockey and hockey sticks. I don't like playing tennis. I will play racquetball, but that's because we didn't have any racket ball brackets. And I still have in my closet one time, and I have on the back of my head a nice, scu- uh, um, a, a nice scar that I didn't realize until I shaved my head for somebody that was having cancer, and I found it. And it reminded me of the time when she came after me with a baseball bat. It was during one of those times she was coming after me. She went to the sports closet. She grabbed that baseball bat. She, was chased, she went after me. I stood around the corner, ripped it out of her hand. I pushed her to the ground and held it over her head like this. And I said, and I was about 13 years old at that time. I said, if you ever come after me again, I'm going to take this bat and crush your skull in the middle of the night. I pushed her away. If you were to go to my garage to this day, that baseball bat is sitting right there next to the recycle bin. It was during one of those times, one of those confrontations, that I ran into my room and I hid myself in the closet. Mom tried to get in. She yelling and screaming, when you get out of here, I'm going to beat beat the living daylights out of you. She's full of her venom. I had my feet up against the wall. She couldn't get in. Finally, I heard her leave. And I learned a long time ago that sometimes she would just act like she'd leave. She'd wait for me to come out. But I knew that I had to wait till Dad come home because she wouldn't dare lay a hand on me if Dad was in the house. Which, by the way, fathers, make sure you take seriously protecting your children. Maybe not from your spouse, but... You have an obligation to protect your children. There's a lot of things out there trying to destroy our children. Why aren't you engaged in their life? 
I think the majority of the problems we have in the United States of America today is because the men are off doing their own thing instead of caring for what their God's called them to care about. All right, that's a side note. I'll go on. <laughs> but make sure you care for me. Anyway, so I was there in the closet, and I decided, I, I reached up, turned on the light, and there was a stack of books. And we went to church all the time. And so we had some, there were some books there, some boys' life books and things like that. And, and I, as I made my way through that stack of books, there was a picture Bible there. And as I was thumbing through it, I saw the stories of, of Noah and the flood. I saw the stories of the creation. I saw, saw the stories of um, uh, Elijah. And then when I got to the stories of Christ, there's some great pictures of, of Christmas and things like that. And then there was one had Christ next to a Roman soldier with a cat of nine tails. His back was bloodied and And the caption read, he did this for you and for me. And it hit me. Here I was, hiding from a beating, reading about someone who was taking a beating for me. Then I believe through the Holy Spirit, it worked even farther. As I began to understand, for the first time in my life, someone wanted me. My dad didn't want me. My mom didn't want me. My sisters didn't want me. My new sisters didn't want me. My new mom didn't want me. The only reason why my new dad wanted me is because I was a boy. You understand, don't you? You may have walked through this door and thought, no one in this world really wants me. Oh, sure, my husband wants me because, well, we're married and everything. Oh, well, my wife wants me, but I don't know. I have a good living. It's too convenient. Maybe, maybe you're saying your parents don't want you. Nobody wants me at work. I'm here to tell you, there's a very powerful message you need to hear. And that there's someone who wants you. They want you so much that they were willing to take a beating for you. No, no, not just a beating. They gave their life for you. And you think nobody wants you? I walked out of that closet a changed man. Because I realized for the first time, someone wanted me. Let me fast forward. I went to college, and I felt called to the ministry. So I started going and taking classes and things like that. And uh, the first week I was there, I got a letter 
I know some of you guys don't know what letters are, but they're these things that on a piece of paper, you write them all out. And, and I got a letter. It was about a 10-page letter. And it began, it began, I can't believe you. And for about 10 pages, mom just wrote Venom. How dare you take dad's money and spend it on a private college like that? I can't believe that you're taking advantage. You, you barely made it through high school, and now you're doing this. And now you think you're going to make something of yourself? Yeah, it, yeah, it's all about you, isn't it? What about us here at home? And it went on and on and on. You'll never amount to anything. Those letters continued to about my sophomore, junior year. I was walking around the circle. that In the center of the campus, they have a circle walkway, and people would often go there to exercise. And I remember I got one of those letters, and I was just down in the dumps. Maybe she's right. Maybe she's right. I, I, I am going to amount to nothing. Maybe I am taking advantage. Have you ever been that in those situations where you just want to give up? I'm walking around that circle, not feeling like I had any friends in the world, and my, somebody came up behind me, poked me in the side, and she says, hey, little brother, it's my older sister, Nola. And she has a great personality, very happy. And she said, what's going on? And I said, oh, nothing. And she said, why? What happened? And she said, as we're walking, I said, oh, I got another letter from mom. And without hardly even thinking, she jumped in front of me as we were walking, and she walked backwards, and she stuck her finger in my face, and she said something very profound. You will never amount to anything until you learn to forgive mother. And with that, she turned around and kept walking. It's the same message I bring to you. You will never amount to anything until you learn to forgive the people in your life who have hurt you. I went back to the dorm that night, and I started talking with some friends, and one of the guys there said, well, let me tell you my story. He told me a, a really gruesome story of how he had been abused by an uncle, and uh, he'd learned how to forgive. And I said, well, tell me what this process is. And he started talking to me. He really became a close friend. And, and one of the things he said, you got to do what's right. Christmas is coming. What's the right thing to do? And I said, well, I'll show up for Christmas. Yeah, but you always do that. But what, what, as far as your mom goes, what should you do? And I said, uh, you're not going to ask me to get her a Christmas gift, are you? And he said, you bet. What's the right thing to do? I said it verbally. I forgive you, Mom. But that wasn't enough. You have to play it out in some practical way. So one of the things, that, that one of the things I did is I bought her a small gift, a little uh, locket or something like that. We had big Christmas, and so there was a lot of uh, presents that day. And, and so I'll never forget Mom opening up that. I didn't ever given her a gift. I didn't want anything to do with her. She opened it up. She saw who it was from, looked at it. And because other people were there, she, uh, she composed herself. But as soon as I hit school, there was a letter waiting for me. It was about 15 pages. And I was walking by, and my buddy, who happened to be in the mailroom with me, when I picked up the letter, and I said, well, Mom's got a letter. And he said, Mike, throw it away. Don't look at it. You don't need to fill your mind with that kind of stuff. So uh, since I was late for class, I think that was orchestrated by God too. I instinctively threw the letter away. And I remember as I was hustling to class the rest of the way that I was overwhelmed with a sense of freedom. 
And I remember thinking, it got to her. I did what was right, and it got to her. So we talked about that. My buddy said, he said, yeah, now what you need to do is do a little something a little bit bigger and bigger and bigger until you fall into the normal category of what you would normally do because that's, that's what needs to happen. You need to treat your mother as do what's right, do what's right, do what's right. And she's going to throw everything she can at you and be prepared for that. But that's the natural part. This is bigger than you, Mike. So for her birthday, I got her a little bit bigger gift. And for her anniversary, I got another bigger gift. And every time she tried to attack me and it was... To have that feeling of freedom is amazing. We were sitting around Bible study at night one night, and the phone rang. And I made a policy, don't have any interaction, one-on-one interaction. Do what's right. Do what's right. Phone rings. Buddy says, hey, you, you got a phone call. Who is it? It's your mom. Tell her I'm, in, I, I'm, I'm busy. I've got a meeting right now. He said, no. Sounds like she's crying. Two things about my mother. Never saw her cry, never saw her laugh. This was unusual. I went to the phone. I said, hello? This is what she said. Michael? She never called me Michael. Never. Now the only people that call me Michael is my wife when I'm in trouble. So anyway, maybe some connection there, I don't know. But she never called me. My mother never called me Michael. Michael, mom, Michael, mom, I am so sorry. What? I'm so sorry. All right, what happened? Come to find out, mom and dad got a divorce and she got the house, and she got lonely. So every night she would walk around, take the dog, and she would walk around the entire neighborhood. And it was on one of those trips, a lady who lived several doors down for her noticed her and struck up a conversation with her. She heard my mom's life story and casually said, hey, you want to come over for a Bible study? Mom said, Sure. They started studying the Bible together. They came across this passage. And the lady who was leading the Bible study encouraged every one of those ladies there, who in your life have you hurt that you need to go and seek forgiveness for? And she said, the only person I could think of was you. And I'm thinking, Mom, there's a few other people you need to be thinking about, but (laughs) we'll get to that later. (laughs) And I said, Mom, I forgive you may not know this, but I forgave you a long time ago. A few days later, she calls me again, and she says, Michael, huh? I said, Mom, do you remember when I wouldn't let you go to the bathroom in the house? Oh, yeah, I remember it. Remember I had to go across the street to the gas station? Yeah, I do. Will you forgive me? Yeah, I did a long time ago. But it's nice to hear. A week or two went by. Michael? Yeah. 
Remember that summer I wouldn't let you play outside at all? In fact, I made you lay out in the sun because we were going down to Kentucky and visit my family and I didn't want you to look real white and pale and I made you lay out in the sun. You got that sunburn really bad? So, yeah, I remember that. Will you forgive me? Mom, I forgave you a long time ago. A couple weeks later, she called me again. She said, remember when? And I said, Mom, can't I just give you a blanket? I forgive you. She said, yeah, but what about Mom? I want to have a meaningful relationship with you. And I want every time we talk that you bring up something else that you did. Suffice it to say that it's forgiven. It's it's, it's in the past. We're going to learn from it, and we're going to move on with our life. I want to have a meaningful relationship with you. She said, how can you do that? And I said, because someone wanted me, and his name is Jesus Christ. And then I said, but if it really bothers you, when you fill out the will, make sure I get double portion, okay? <laughs> Would you do that? And mom laughed. Can you imagine going 20-some years without ever hearing your mother laugh? Some of you, you've never been forgiven. You've never had that confrontation with Jesus Christ when you recognize that he loves you with an everlasting love and he forgives you. And now you're trying to make it work on your own. I will tell you, this passage is so clear. You cannot forgive people unless you first understand that you've been forgiven. Christ, later on, we have a re interesting account in Luke chapter 7. And I just want to read it to you real quickly. There's, he's coming in to teach, and, and, and Simon is, is there, and, and the tradition was that you wash your feet, and a, uh, the owner of the house or the, the person the house that was would have someone there to wash your feet and, and let you freshen up after traveling around. And uh, an interesting thing goes on, but... I want to pick up in, in, in Luke chapter 7, verse 44. It says, let me just read it for you. It said, then he turned, he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, he being Christ, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loves much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Do you understand what he's saying there? 
maybe you're the type of person that come into, and you don't get anything out of worship service. You know, you kind of drift in here, maybe you enjoy the music a little bit, and you, you don't really get any out of, anything out of Todd's sermons or other people's sermons. And it's kind of flatline. It's, it's something you do, but it's not really any passion there. Have you ever wondered why? Well, why, isn't there, why are there people who actually raise their hands during a song service? Why would people do that? Are they all Baptists? They just don't raise their hands? Maybe, but I'll tell you the reason why, and Christ gives us the answer. The reason why people don't engage worship, they don't find the scriptures interesting, it's not very, it's passionless. Why? It's because they don't recognize that they've been forgiven a lot. The more you realize how much you've been forgiven, the more you're able to engage this process. And the more happy you become. Maybe you need to go to that closet. Maybe you need to have a confrontation and realize very few people in this world want you. But there's one, and he's given it all. In a moment, I'm going to have us stand and have a word of prayer. And I'm going to ask if there's anybody here who's never asked Jesus Christ, to be their Lord and Savior, that they give their life to him and experience that forgiveness on a first-hand basis. And then when we say amen, we're going to open up the communion tables. And if you are so inclined, we want to remember the tremendous sacrifice that Jesus Christ has done for us and, and how much he gave for us. The Bible talks about how we should examine our lives, make sure that there's nothing standing between us and our Savior. And so we want to do that. So after I say amen, if you, make your, if you are inclined, make your way to one of the tables, grab a, 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 a piece of bread, at, grab a juice, and then take it back to your seats and be seated, and then wait for a leader to come by, and we're going to take it together as we remember that tremendous sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for us.